This is Dave Gibbons, and you are listening to Who Reads the Watchman by the Legion of Dudes. This is the end, beautiful friend. This is the end, my only friend, the end. Banded together from remote galaxies are the most sinister villains of all time. It's the Legion of Dudes podcast. Let the midnight special shine a light on me. Let the midnight special. It's midnight. Welcome to a half hour wasted presents the penultimate episode of Who Reads the Watchman by the Legion of Dudes. Hey folks, we're going to be doing issue number 12, part one today. This is Adam Umack, your co-hostess with the Moses from the Legion of Dudes, and I am joined with the scamps and scallywags that are the Legion of Dudes. Here's everybody. This is Russ. This is Jim. This is John. This is Ken. Folks, please check us out on iTunes. Just type in Legion of Dudes or Half Hour Wasted. Be sure to check us out at thecomicforums.com under the Half Hour Wasted and Legion of Dudes banner. Make sure you check out Brad and Frank's show, A Half Hour Wasted, every Monday. And make sure you check us out on Thursdays. Well, guys, um, it is my distinct pleasure to meet an old friend of ours. Uh, he has a new podcast um, with uh, a few of our buddies from the forums. Guys, say hello to Paul French from Canada. What's up, Paul? Hey, everybody. How's it going? Paul, it is uh, most awesome to have you on here. I know we go back way, way back to Comic Geek Speak episode 300, Shindig. Absolutely. Good to see you at uh, the Super Show last year as well. We ate many, many pancakes together. Uh, <laughs> Indeed we did. <laughs> I, I think, uh, you know, the U.S.-Canadian alliance is best set at the International House of Pancakes. Um, you know, what with tumultuous world economies being what they are today. Um, I want to talk about one thing in your current project uh, right now. Um, it's called the Legion of Substitute Podcasters. Can you talk to us a little bit about what you and Rick and uh, Darren and Matt have going on over in your corner of the Internet? Well, basically what we're doing is, uh, after hearing a whole lot of people say, you know, the Legion of Superheroes, it sounds like a cool idea, but I don't know where to start. And, and everyone would be kind of like, well, haven't they rebooted a bunch of times, and this has happened, and that has happened, and and I, I just don't know where to begin. And so we, we uh, Darren had posted a thread about a year ago, just sort of a getting used to who's who in the Legion. And um, and so he would go through each character, basically, and uh, and explain who they were in each version of the Legion continuity, because we just... We actually just last week finished what we call the three boot, which is the uh, uh, the, the the run that started with Wade and Kitson, and um, and basically it was our way of of deciding to start right at the beginning, as Julie Andrews said, a very good place to start, and uh, and we decided to uh, we, you know we go through like some of those really early stories 
and uh, and we kind of you know it, revel in the silver age s- silliness of them. Um, and then on the other side of it, we we also have covered some of the more recent stories. Uh, for example, every every time an issue of Legion of Three Worlds comes out, we'll be covering that. And uh, we just actually a couple of days ago our seventeenth uh, episode, which covers the um, Superman and the Legion of Superheroes story from Action Comics last year. And that was the Gary Frank Jeff Johns. Uh, venture to Legion. Would, um, let me ask you this. Um, you guys have covered an awful lot. You guys got uh, character histories, character spotlights like uh, Mon-El, for example, who's actually back in the action comics in Superman land, um, yeah. post-New Krypton right now. You've got um, the Legion of Substitute superheroes. You've got my favorite, which has got to be Superboy and the Legion of Supervillains, most definitely. Oh, yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. this podcast, it's such a great primer it's such a great primer to an area of the DCU that's, you know, obviously, as you said, has been, you know, done over and over and over again. Um, let me ask you this. Do you think that they are, quote unquote, finally getting it right with um, Legion of Three Worlds and the recent action run? I, I really do. I think that uh, that an important thing that Johns did in, uh, in, in the action run was to say, this is what the Legion is all about. The Legion is about brotherhood. The Legion is about you know, being a, a, an example of what the future can be. And uh, before there was, a, there was always, you know, some confusion of sort of, what are they doing? Are they just a bunch of superheroes that are inspired by Superboy? Oh, wait, now there was no Superboy, so now they couldn't have been inspired by that. So, you know, it, it seemed kind of rudderless. And then it came down to the uh, what Wild in the Streets era of... Uh, of the three boot where, you know, it was just the, the eat it grandpa, uh, you know, and it was, it was a, a rebellious youth kind of thing. Um, I think that John's has done a really good job of, of bringing it back to its essence. And that is, as I say, sort of an example of hope for the future. And, uh, and, and that's definitely, um, if you, if you sort of read, you know, the, it take the thread from the, uh, the end of the lightning saga into uh, the Superman and the Legion of Superheroes uh, storyline, which takes us right into, uh, and actually this, here's, here's something. A lot of people look at that Superman and the Legion storyline. There was another issue right after that uh, called Batman and the Legion of Superheroes, which basically acts as the bridge between that action story and Legion of Three Worlds and uh, and kind of takes us right to page 1 of Legion of 3 Worlds there and uh, and and so i think that you know there's all the, all these things about the legion but there's also the fact that there are there are a bunch of ass kicking superheroes in the 31st century and uh, and and he seems to be remembering all of that stuff which is really refreshing for a longtime fan no uh, i i'd probably go out i don't think this is going out on a limb let me put it that way that the legion probably has not had as much exposure just number one from DC, but also, also in general pop culture as it has probably in the last two years with the cartoon, with the recent Smallville episode, with um, the, I would say, really prominent role that they've actually had in the main um, DC arcs and titles lately. Yeah, and, and you know what, when you look at it, like, you know, 20 years ago, um, even, well, more, you know, sort of 25 years ago, uh, that was DC's best-selling book. You know, it was it was the Legion, and it was New Teen Titans, and uh, so you know, not too far off the era that we're talking about here with Watchmen. You know, the other the other huge book uh, there was. You know, I mean, it doesn't hurt that Levitz was writing writing it for so many years. Um, you know, but that was that was the, the big title, and uh, and it seemed that still it was one of those things where you know. People didn't really know it. You know, I had a friend who used to always say that, uh, 
you know, you kind of you kind of made your pick uh, when you were a kid in the early '80s, and you either went the X Men route or you went the Legion route. And I, I definitely chose the Legion route. And so, the last couple of years, seeing them get the kind of mainstream exposure is, is huge. You know, it, there's uh, it's kind of neat to hear someone asking about uh, about Saturn Girl or saying, "So, what's with Lightning Lad?" You know, that kind of stuff. It's uh, it's kind of a neat thing to hear happening again. And uh, one more time, you guys can check those guys out at legionofsubstitutepodcasters.com, or you can also uh, type in the same thing on iTunes and subscribe to their feed right there. One last question, Paul, before we jump into Watchmen stuff with Jim here. Talking about timing, did you plan, and Darren and everybody, did you guys plan on releasing a podcast that was also using the name Legion on purpose when we came out? You know, it, it, because it, when you, this this could have been really really ugly. <laughs> I, it's funny you say that when we were when we were talking about names back and forth, it was it was pretty obvious that we were going to have to choose something with the word Legion in it. It's it's a Legion of Superheroes podcast. You know, you you, you sometimes need to to kind of go out there with 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 what you with you know who you are and what you're doing, right? And and I and I said, but you know. The Legion of Dudes is already out there, and, and I'd kind of feel bad jumping on that. But then he said about, well, you know, Legion of Substitute Podcasters. It's like, okay, well, then it's kind of funny anyway. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I said, you know, well, they did kind of, their name is more based on the Legion of Doom. So, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a bit of a difference there. You know, there's the, the Legion of Three Worlds proves that more wait than a minute, one Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're based on the Legion of Doom? I My God, look that. at us. <laughs> Grundy want pie. <laughs> we should be renamed the Bouncing Boys. <laughs> just, I just like to think we're all weightless in space if we are in the 31st century. So you know, <laughs> indeed, indeed, awesome. Hey, um, well, Paul, uh, please jump in. We are um, more than happy to have you on tonight. This is uh, long overdue. We've had to reschedule a bunch of times. So um, I'm going to shut up and I'm going to toss everything over to Brother Jim. Jim's going to school us on the awesomeness that's coming up for the Legion of Dudes and its loyal listeners in the next couple of weeks. Take it away, bud. Well, we are very excited to finally be able to announce, and we've had this under our hats for a few days, and you'll have to excuse my voice because the Pittsburgh Steelers won the Super Bowl last night, and I'm doing the best I can. Uh, we have a exclusive recorded interview with Mr. Dave Gibbons, uh, the artist of Watchmen, conceptualizer, comics legend, and all-around super nice guy for answering our long, involved, geeky questions that we asked him. But we're going to be airing this as part of our final episode extravaganza, uh, the Watchmen final episode, part two, which we'll be airing in, I think it's going to be on the 10th? No, we're going to be, uh, uh, we'll be recording on Monday the 10th. You will not have to wait two weeks to get your second dose of issue 12. It will be one week apart. We're going to break the cycle. We're going to be a little dangerous. And uh, an issue two, Watchmen issues back to back. In addition to our exclusive interview with uh, Dave Gibbons, we're also going to be taking calls on our Skype session starting at 9 p.m. Eastern. Isn't that right? That's correct. So if you aren't, if you've been following along with us, uh, you've uh, re- reading along with us, and you want to give your thoughts on Watchmen live on the Legion of Dudes podcast, join us then over Skype. It's going to be pretty exciting, guys. It's been a long trip, a long, strange trip. Our Skype phone number is 516-468-7912. What's that number? 516-468-7912. Anyway, so please call in, 
Plus, you can listen to our uh, exclusive interview with Dave Gibbons, which is pretty sweet. Yes, he was it is. super nice. Want to thank Catherine from Titan Books for hooking it up. Very nice lady. Thank you so much. Uh, next thing I want to mention about that very same show is that we're going to be taking care of a lot of our thank yous, shout outs, and, uh, and mentions that we haven't been able to get to or that we've been collecting over the past 12 issues for all of our friends who've been listening, contributing to the forums, helping out, been guests on the show. We're going to uh, tie it all up there. And also, in a final announcement, uh, Johnny M., uh, Logan McLeod, Ken, and myself are all going to be at the New York Comic Con this weekend, uh, Friday. Well, John will be there Friday, but Ken and I will be there Friday and Saturday. So uh, if you see us, we'll be the big guys in Legion of Dudes t-shirts, hanging out in Podcast Alley, uh, trying to find nacho scraps and uh, half-eaten <laughs> giant pretzels and whatnot, and you know, hot dog buns, things like that. So I think that's all the uh, the business we had to take care of. I'm going to throw it over to Russ now to uh, start off our final journey with the Watchmen. All righty. Well, here we are, the, the, the beginning of the end, as it were. It's hard to believe that many, many weeks ago we, we started this journey, and here we are about to kick off um, the final issue, issue 12. Um, just like Adam said, it is midnight, um, and the first page of the issue definitely um, shows us that it is midnight. The cover to this one, you know, like we said for the 11 issues previous, is a is a more detailed, blown-up version of the first panel, um, which for this issue is actually the entire first page. Um, actually, the first six pages of this issue are all full-page spreads, which is pretty awesome. We haven't seen that um, prior to, to this issue. You know, we've seen a couple um, full-page spreads, but, but very sparingly. Um, and even when you look at, at the first page here, it... Uh, the way the, the, it's gridded out with the windows and stuff, it almost looks like it kind of has a panel-ish kind of layout um, where you have the, the divider between the first and second floor and so on. But very creepy. Um, that, you know, my first thoughts in, when opening up this page, especially seeing the cover with all the blood dripping down and the detail on the blood, was just this is just very creepy, very, very creepy. Yeah, there's definitely some um, little nuggets to pick up on each of these pages. Um Above that pale horse sign on the bottom left, you have the exact blood splatter that we've seen, you know, on the um, Happy Face logo for all these issues. Is there an obvious reference that I'm missing to that piece of paper that says G3265? I wasn't able to figure one out, but I figured it has to have some sort of meaning to it. I think it's like a seat ticket, like Section G, seat 325, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I'm sure that's what it is. I just figured that the numbers wouldn't be random, you know? It is uh, the address to it's a Dunkin' Donuts in Flint, Michigan. <laughs> I was just going to say that. <laughs> just past the Slauson cutoff. Uh, also, we noticed the visual theme. The very first issue, we had the uh, smiley face with just the one red smear on it. Now we have the face of a clock totally covered in blood. So at first we have the tiny killing of the comedian, and here in the last issue we have the mass murder in uh in new york so they kind of contrast each other there and just the the sheer volume of dead bodies i mean if i, I guess if you can imagine the entire madison square garden completely sold out which they make a point of putting on that pale horse sign just so you understand how many people there are there and, and every last one of them are, are dead um and just the blood i mean this is something you know again we talk about you know, what What were we seeing in comics 22 years ago, 23 years ago? This is definitely not something we're seeing in comics 22, 23 years ago. 
you know, blood was always one of those things that was kind of muted. They either drew it like black or, you know, it was very seldom that you actually saw blood drawn, especially when there's any kind of, you know, volume of blood where it's actually red. Um, you know, most of the time they try and, you know, kind of, kind of mute it out or put it in the shadows or, or whatnot, or it's kind of a you know, little bit here, a little bit there. You would see, like, trickles or pools of blood. You just would never see torrents of it like you're seeing here. Yeah. I was going to say, in most splash pages in comics, uh, in, you know, traditional comics, they always have a big action scene. It's always, like, you know, Iron Man punching, you know, the, the Crimson Dynamo or whatever. And this, these are almost like anti-splash pages. There is nothing going on in here now that this has happened. All these people are dead. The only th- movement on the page at all that you could even surmise would be the smoke rising or the blood coming down. Gibbons pretty much gave the long and short of the original art sales for Watchmen as um, the issue was being drawn. I think we had mentioned that the Tales of the Black, of the Black Freighter pages um, did not really pop and did not get sold initially. Um, however, as the issue itself was being created, and before its release, uh, number 12 was sold sight unseen um, in its entirety to a party uh, in the States from Gibbons' art dealer at the time. It, uh, I, I'm pretty sure the standard rate was 50 to 100 bucks a page uh, back then. Also, if you take a look down by the uh, broken glass pale horse, the sign with the pale horse poster on it, um, there's one knot top with the Band-Aid on his forehead, um, this page and the next, you know, couple of splash pages mark the, uh, I, I'm just going to call it like the tertiary supporting cast of Watchmen, like Dr. Long, the Bernies, all, all those guys. Um, it, this was the uh, knot top that Dan was interrogating at Happy Harry's uh, a few issues back when he found out about Hollis Mason's death. That's a good catch. Yeah, I missed that. Yeah, one of the, not, not to get too far off track, but one of the things I was listening to, John Huntress's Word Balloon, and he had... I forget the guy's name, apologize, um, that was the kind of the lead animator guy on the Watchmen Motion comics, and he said that was one of the challenges, is because Dave Gibbons owns none of the original art from the Watchmen. I mean, he sold it, you know, like Adam said, many years ago, and so he had nothing to kind of go back to for, as far as original art and you and give them. You know, everything that they needed that was new or additions had to be completely redrawn for that. So, just another aside. I also noticed the way the camera moves uh, away from Madison Square Garden and toward the uh, the intersection that uh, we've been watching through this entire miniseries, and we see it almost every you know from every corner as we see these char- the different characters from that intersection. We see the intersection itself: one tentacle through the Gunga Diner, uh, one tentacle through the Promethean Cab Company, uh, one sticking by the, uh, the day the Earth stood still playing at the Utopia Theater. And then the, the final one, the actual body of the giant squid sticking out of the Institute of Interspatial Studies. Yeah, it's, you know, you really get a, a, you know, especially, you know, between two and three, it's not, it's not a double-page spread, but the way they draw that tentacle, I mean, obviously, when you look at it close, you can see it's two separate images, but the way that he's positioned it, it, it again, it keeps you in that scope where it, look, it almost looks like one big, huge tentacle that's sprawled across um, both those pages, but it, it just it really gives you um, a good sense of how huge this thing is. I mean, because we're not seeing, you know, we get you know five or six pages in before we see the whole, and, and even then, I don't think we see the entire thing. But before we really see this creature and and just get an you know a, a, a vision of how huge it is. 
and then you know like page two if you know if you look closely at page two it's it's kind of a pulled back um version of page one you know so you know it's funny the the cover is a is a close up of page one and page two is a pullback of page one in, and and it's just it's it's interesting you know again we talk about how things translate to the screen and I know there's been some changes to the end but it'll be it'll be interesting to see how this comes across and you can kind of give it again it, it keeps that cinematic feel where you're kind of pulling away um, you know like like the camera's moving backward and 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 reducing its uh, its zoom as it moves away it's pretty grisly too because you can see the clock from Madison Square Garden and it's twelve oh five. So, yeah. like, in my head, I'm imagining from page one to page two, there's a slow five-minute pullback, which I know is a little ridiculous, but this is how my brain operates. But that's, that's pretty creepy. And I, I'm saying, I went back to issue 11 real quick, and the reason why the tentacles are where they are is that, um, to quote Adrian, it says, Teleporting to New York, my creature's death would trigger mechanisms within its massive brain cloned from a human-sensitive, like telepath, the resultant psychic shot wave killing half the city. So obviously, Squidzilla pops out of nowhere. He pops into the Institute for Extra Spatial Studies, and when he's tele- the, the squid teleports literally into the city. That's why the tentacles are beneath the ground, I would only can imagine, be into the subway, correct? Yeah, it's the whole thing. It's, it's, it's almost like if something phased... You know, like Kitty Pride phased in, a, you know, you know, coming up through the ground and, you know, solidified halfway through. You know, that kind of thing going on. You can see everywhere, everywhere one of these tentacles touches a solid surface, it's it's bloodied. You know, you can see the bluish green blood. So obviously, this thing was, you know, as it as it materialized inside solid matter, it 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 definitely, you know, messed it up. Hey, did you guys um, notice all the watches on the ground? Yeah. Everybody's yeah. Nobody has their watches on. If you look across the um, blacktop, like way on the bottom, I mean, you'll I can see I, I guess probably a dozen to fifteen watches laying all over the uh, pavement. It's interesting that um, really one of the last tertiary characters to be introduced to Watchmen was uh, this uh, like I don't know street vendor street you know um, this guy selling watches. Uh, we saw him first when. Uh, Joey and her girlfriend were getting into a fight a few, um, last issue with um, the, uh, Bernard, the news vendor, uh, trying to break up the fight and uh, or uh, almost like giving the play-by-play of the fight, excuse me, and Dr. Long uh, telling his wife that he needs to stop this. He can't just be a witness. So that was actually one of the last characters um, we've met in the book, and he's dead. It's, I noticed, too, that the, the closer, as the camera moves toward Bernie the news dealer, we see more newspapers. Like in the first pan, we only see one or two. Then we see two or three, all saying war with a question mark. But as we finally get to Bernie, there are papers everywhere. And in the same uh, panel on page six, it has the Veet method underneath the giant squid, the snarly face with the schmutz on it, and at the bottom left, a Rorschach ink plot. It's funny, too, that the Utopia Theater, and we had seen this in a previous issue, has featured The Day the Earth Stood Still. I think it's funny that Watchmen and the, and the remake of The Day the Earth Stood Still are coming out within, well, less than a year of each other. I just thought that was, you know, just kind of a funny coincidence that happens. And also there's the Gunga Diner balloon on the far right of page three that's crashed. And likewise, yeah. at the top of two, there's um, one of the electric, the airship. the airship that John always used to point out, 
It's going down. It's like the Hindenburg, man. Oh, no, it's stuck in a building. Yeah, which is kind of a wild image when you think about it now. Yeah. Couple couple things, you know. Jim mentioned the newspaper. It's funny that the newspaper it says war with you know it's with a question mark. So it's like you know questioning war, and you look at these panels, and it and it's like a war zone, you know. But you know it's quite it, you know it, it's almost like a nod to itself. It's like war, you know. Um, you know, obviously there wasn't a war here, but it looks like a war went through it. And that's the question Adrian's asking too. How do we stop the war? What's the solution? Right. right. Plus, it punctuates how close to nuclear war everything was at the end of last issue, before right. the squid popped, and how desperate the world situation is. And, and you also get a couple of uh, a couple of World War Two shoutouts here. What well, with the crystal knock um, on the pale horse sign, you know, referring to uh, that was that was a, actually an attack on a lot of Jewish-owned businesses in Nazi Germany, and uh, and then of course up behind uh, the Bernies. Uh, you see uh, the uh, the Hiroshima lovers painted on the uh, on the wall again. Yeah, the uh, one of the one of the interesting things um, on page three that I that I kind of noticed was a you know obviously you get the day the earth stood still in big print and obviously this is the day the earth stood still I mean literally and you know and, and figuratively I mean as far as this area of New York is concerned everything is is just dead stopped. Um, and, and I imagine the rest of the world is stopping in its tracks, you know, to, to see what's going on. Um, you know, kind of similar, I guess, to 9-11 even, you know, where, where everybody just kind of stopped to watch. Um, the other thing is the utopia sign itself. Okay, it's the utopia theater, but yet the T has fallen off. So it's almost yeah. like, you know, utopia, you know, it's almost like this is not utopia. This is definitely not utopia. Um you know, everything is in disarray. There's blood everywhere. There's dead people everywhere. So um, I, I took that, the tea being on the floor like that was a nod to, you know, the fact that this is definitely not utopia. And in both examples of the word utopia on that page, because you'll see toward the far right, you've got the uh, the movie poster. And again, the word is broken there as well. Oh, yeah. The, yeah, the U's missing. Yeah, I didn't see that. Doesn't anybody see Raph? I know Midtown's supposed to be close to this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then of course we get um now you guys refer- refresh me I, I need to go i guess delve back and, and see if i can find it the the hiroshima lovers like paul pointed out in in this case the the woman has her head pointed down um facing the man and i i would i thought and i'm looking through just for reference that in the past we've seen it to where they're standing looking face to face and not uh, not facing away from each other, or not one you know the woman facing down. I don't recall. I'm trying to look back myself now. Yes. Uh, well, the one place they show it, 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 it's an actual shadow with Doctor Long and his wife, and they are facing each other. Well, I can say that for the dream sequence with Dan and Lori, it's face to face, and then when Dan and Lori kiss, Dan has his head kind of like cocked down because obviously Laurie's shorter than him, when they're like uh, Dr. Manhattan-like skeletons during the explosion. And I guess, looking at it now, that is the same This is the same pose. I don't know why it just struck me as as, as being different this time, but it, but it isn't. You know, the, the tone of the whole page makes you think that, you know, she's it's kind of like subliminal, like her head is more down, like in sadness. You know, that that's what you're thinking, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It just it stood out to me more, even though that's the way it's always been, which is, you know, again, I think a, a, a says something about the art itself. 
If you guys go you to the shame um, later, um, if you guys go to uh, issue number six, page thirteen, issue number six, page thirteen, we had um, spoken about this page um, earlier when we did issue six, and um, the question was, what's that crazy thing above Doctor Long's wife's head? Okay. Yeah. There's like this crazy chandelier, and I said, "Oh, I know what it is. We'll wait till we get to number twelve. Um, the crazy chandelier, I think, is while it's not an exact, you know what I mean. I think it's probably closest to like the like the uh, tentacles from the squid, and it's kind of like hovering over his wife, which kind of makes sense because uh, remember she's the one that, well, at least wanted Malcolm to, you know, come around, be real, but it was the one with, excuse me. Malcolm was the one who went into hero mode when there was that fight, kind of like the Kitty Genovese um, incident a few years back from the book. So I, I think we can safely say that that's kind of like the tentacles uh, looming over uh, these two, and his wife in particular. Yeah, that's a, that, I think that's that's the closest uh, explanation that, that makes sense that I've, I've heard. And the first appearance of the Hiroshima lovers was when Rorschach was... At the Gunga Diner, if I'm correct. Yeah, in the in the background. It's also. I was just going to say this is a visual uh, um, theme that we'll, we're going to see at the end of this issue as well, a few times. Yeah, Russ. Uh, for, first, um, first one is um, page 18 of issue number five. It's the first panel. Someone tried to kill Veed proves masculine theory uh, closing in. Murder is closing in. And so we see the Hiroshima lovers, and her head's kind of, like, dipped. And this is when Rorschach gets the um, letter from Moloch. It's actually the same place we're seeing right now, right next to the Utopia Theater. Yeah, that is true. So then, of course, we get, on page five, we kind of get our, our pairings. Yeah, actually, page four and five. I think page four, isn't that, aren't, isn't that the two cops, the two detectives? And then on page five, we get Joey and her girlfriend, and then we get the two Bernies, and then we get the, was it the two brothers, the one that owns the Gordian Knot Company, and then the, and then his cousin that, or brother that owns the cab company? Uh, Chris Beckett on our forums had a really good post about all the different dualities. I know we mentioned it in a previous episode, but how Watchmen is really about pairs, like the comedian and Laurie, or Laurie and Dr. Manhattan, or Night Owl and Rorschach. And uh, if you check out our forums, you can read what I'm talking about. But Chris Beckett also made that point. And even with these ancillary characters, um, they're they're all paired off, like you're saying. Yeah, yeah. If you look at Doc, if you look at Doctor Long's wife, and not to get too gross here, but the way the blood stain is on his jacket is just like Rorschach's blood stain from when he killed the the uh, the dog. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like. I want to say that Dr. Long is even closer to Rorschach now, that idea of acting with a sense of urgency and purpose and not, well, cowtailing or wimping out. Yeah. And then, of course, we get, it, it's interesting that the, the, I guess it's the the sign, or is that is that a vehicle? That, yeah, it's a vehicle that's tipped over with the window broken for the Gordian, you know, not law company. You know, again, the, the Gordian knot's been broken. I guess to make an omelet, you got to break a few eggs. So, do you guys notice on um on page four, if you go to the left side of the huge tentacle where it says Gunga Diner, the smoke is covering like the end, so it just says die. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Good that's gonna like the um the fallout shelter uh, cover. Yeah, especially in you know 
to, to start coloring all these pages, these first five or six, the, the, the coloring is just it's just very, very stark. And we'll hear some explanation about that in the next in the next episode. And page six is just nuts. Yeah. <laughs> so page six we see that the Center for Interspatial Studies is the ground zero, or the Institute for Interspatial Studies, I guess, is is ground zero for this whole catastrophe. Yeah, and you've got the um, the pink the pink triangle uh, sign, and it's the gay women against rape (GWAR) with the stuff uh, sort of splattering on it. So you just see the initials "war" again, right? And then the uh, the plug on the hydrant down at the bottom there, with the familiar, you know, because it kind of looks like the smiley face, and mm-hmm. again with the uh, with the blood stain uh, over it. Yep, right in that spot. I mean, the detail he's packed into these pages is just incredible. You know, it's like we talk about splashes and 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 the you know the the inactivity of them, but there is just so much to get out of all of these pages. Well, I didn't oh, yeah. get to take away from his eye for detail at all. I was just saying that you know, there there. I mean, this is almost like a still picture of what happened. You know, but the yeah. I mean, I agree. The detail is incredible on every page. Yeah, every time I look back, I'm sorry, Russ. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say that um, every time I look back, I catch something else. Like I just, while you guys were talking about six and seven, I just flipped back, and there's a nostalgia bottle on the ground, and on page five, which I never caught, above the Rorschach ink, uh, ink blot on the right side yeah. of five. Yeah, laying on side. Kind of like a Where's Waldo. Yes. Creepy Where's Waldo. I, I was just going to say I've never quote read, taken so long to read six pages of no dialogue. I think ever. And speaking of dialogue, when we finally move on to seven, it's interesting. The first spoken word in this issue is midnight, which is pretty, you know, pretty where we are when we started this issue. And we find out it's midnight, November second. I think it's funny that also um, Bernie, his glasses are broken, and you know, Bernie's the one that's been our gateway into Tales of the Black Freighter. And I almost want to say that it's it's like, and we'll talk about Black Freighter at the end, I'm sure, but. Black Freighter, what is this? Like a cautionary tale? Are the glasses broken? Like he didn't see it coming along with the rest of us? I'm not exactly sure. And up on page seven, we get Lori with the tear coming down, which again looks like the smiley face with the blood stain. Yeah. And here we have the first time that she and Dr. Manhattan transport, the Manhattan transfer, so to speak. And noticeably, she doesn't get sick. No, oh, that's right. Yeah. And hasn't that always been the um, the running kind of maim whenever, you know, Lori gets transported when she was on Mars, yada, yada, yada? It's, I, I guess there's plenty of other things to be disgusted about. Like, if you take a look at page six, it says, all die on the Institute for Extraspatial Studies sign, just like John pointed out earlier. Yeah. Mm. Yes, yeah. You know, the the uh, the other thing is the... And this goes back to you know because I, I spent I spent the last week sort of re-listening to all your old episodes, guys. So uh, oh, why uh, one you of do the that? yeah, well, it's it's all, it's good stuff, man. Um, <laughs> Checks in the but, mail, but, Paul. Checks in the mail. <laughs> but there was something that Jim had brought up. I think it was in the second episode, um, and that was talking about the dichotomies that they put on pages, where you've got something there and there's something opposing that, and of course it says midnight, and right above that is the sign bringing light to the world. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's there's no mistakes in this. There's you know, there's there's you know, he positioned her in that spot for a reason, 
and um, and had that sign showing in the background for a reason. And it's just, just there's there's you know everything is just so deliberately placed. What I want to know is why is Doctor Manhattan reading the paper? <laughs> isn't, isn't he like omniscient? Isn't he like the the literal de- Deus ex machina, God from a machine? Well, he he answers that in the next you, panel for you. Yeah, yeah. I just think it's funny that you know he has no idea. I mean. It just goes to show his whole cluelessness. I mean, he is the one who brought everyone to the brink of war by leaving and going to Mars, and yet he's reading about it in the paper. Can you imagine being someone who basically knows everything, all facets of time, basically? You know, I mean, there is, there's nothing he doesn't know for, the, for him to come across a gap in that knowledge. And, and I mean, I think that there's, there's something being, being said there just about, you know, people think they know everything, and there's always something that can catch you off guard. I said on the message board that we need Dr. Manhattan to tell us what's going to happen in Lost because he's the only one who knows what's going on. (laughs) (laughs) And and Adam, just to to go back to those eyeglasses and and kind of what we're talking about, um, you know, I took it as, well, let me backtrack. A a main slogan of this book is who watches the Watchmen, you know, and and the glasses are broken. So, you know, somebody, we, we weren't able to watch them. You know, that that's that's how I read it. You know, nobody had their eye on Adrian Veet. Well, the other thing with the broken glasses is kind of reminiscent of uh, what was the uh, Time Enough at Last, one of the uh, Twilight Zone episodes. Burgess and, Meredith, yeah. classic. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, classic. exactly. And it just, you know, I mean, this is a kid, this is a character that we have known as someone who's reading something all the way through. And uh, uh, another reference to something uh, that takes place post-apocalypse. Yes. Yeah. It, it's interesting at the you know where where Doctor Manhattan goes at the bottom of, of seven. He goes, I'd almost forgotten the excitement of not knowing, the delights of uncertainty. It's like <laughs> he he doesn't remember, but now he remembers the fact that he didn't remember. You know, it's so it's does he really not remember, or does he just you know it's it's this whole again we get into this whole what does he know, what does he not know, how does he perceive time, how is you know he moving? Obviously, this section has is a hiccup for him and. You know, it's 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 like even though he knows the hiccup is there, it doesn't change the fact that there's a hiccup. And he's reacting to the fact that the tachyons have messed everything up for him. And Laurie, on the opposite uh, side of the coin, is reacting to these people as people. You know, Tandori to go. That's all they went out for, Tandori to go. So he's reacting to it, what has happened all around him, all the slaughter as a scientific phenomenon. And she is viewing it from the perspective of the, all these dead people. Yeah, there's those dichotomies again. Speaking of Lost Ken, I guess uh, Daniel Faraday and Dr. Manhattan would, would probably agree with one another in their theories on, on time and, and what can take place. I would think so. <laughs> but it, it's, you know, it's interesting that, you know, and then we get, you know, of course, moving on to page eight, we just get, you know, this exchange where he he is just, it's almost like he's fascinated by this whole thing. He doesn't see this as an ungodly catastrophe and, and you know, the, the death of all these people and the destruction and, you know, what this really means. He, he's just, you know, enamored with the fact that he couldn't detect it and why he couldn't detect it and trying to figure out, okay, well, if there's tachyons, i got to figure out you know, where the generators are and what's going on and where it all could be. And then Laurie is totally consumed with, with, with the horror of it, you know, with, with what is actually going on. What's really important here is, well, they, while they do a great job of epitomizing, you know, the disconnect of Dr. Manhattan that, that you've just been speaking about and that we've spoken about for issues and issues, you know, in the meantime, Laurie is eyeing the gun that will be, you know, important later 
and I guess sticking it in her purse or hiding it somewhere. You know what? I've read this twice now, getting ready for this episode, and I missed that both times. That's how I roll. So then we get to, to page nine, and we finally, after eight pages, um, cut back to you know kind of where we left off in, in issue 11. where um, And it kind of makes sense, because I guess over the first eight pages, we're... You know, we're pretty much caught up to to where you know Adrian has just relayed his plan to um, to to Dan and Rorschach, and Dan just he just refuses to believe it. He doesn't, you know. Adrian tells him exactly what happens, and he just doesn't believe it. He doesn't. I, I think you know. Again, he doesn't want to believe it. You know, he know. You know, deep down, he knows it's true, but he's not allowing himself to to come to grips with it. And Rorschach totally knows he's 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 not lying, and he's freaked out by Bubastis. So. I don't know what that's all about. I guess I'm freaked out by Blue Bostas. I think it ties back to that whole dog thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say he looks too much like a dog. And then uh, Dan still has his winter coat on. Have you got not to not to sidetrack too much, but have you guys seen the the photo they published from the movie with the uh, with Dan in his uh, his his winter night owl outfit? No, it's it's pretty snazzy. <laughs> pretty snazzy. Looks like a big old parka. You know, when I when I first read this, I remember thinking that it reminded me of, you know, it was like the excuse to have all the action figures like, you know, here's Snow Batman and here's uh, Underwater <laughs> Batman. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Deep, deep space time travel, that out. And I love that, you know, at the bottom of nine when Dan, you know, I, he's, he's finally come around to the realization that, oh, you know, he said, you you couldn't really do that. And Adrian just has that smile on his face like, you know, of course I can and he doesn't have any remorse about it, you know. He just saw it as the as the right thing to do. He's referring to the idea that could he possibly catch a bullet, really? Yeah. It's not even about the the whole thing. He's he's pretty much still freaked out over the idea that he could kill all those people. But it's like, is he superhuman, too? Well, it, that, that whole faster than a speeding bullet, right? He is Superman. We talked about the, uh, well, necessarily Aryan qualities about Adrian. Right earlier so i guess that's ubermensch right yeah then on on 10 we kind of get a little more detail into his his plan and you know finding out that you know the psychic was the key and that he um he acquired his brain after you know poor robert deshane he acquired his brain after death and his genetics cloned something much bigger obviously big as a building and more powerful um incorporating it into my creature so again we now we're starting to see where all the moving pieces are coming together, all these, you know, the island, the people, and the ones that disappeared, and, um, you know, the others from the text pages, and the, the guys that were, you know, his assistants, and all that. And then one of the things is that's interesting is he, when he talks about his servant's death, he says, my servant's death from exposure after drunkenly opening my vibarium provides its silent capstone, which is a total lie. He drugged them, and then, and then he opened the, the lid. Correct. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it, so it's interesting. Here he is divulging the, the 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 infinite details about his plan, but yet that one thing he he totally lies about. Yeah, he just massacred millions of people, but he's lying about the two guys in his uh, lair. Yeah. yeah, we talked about his like giant ego before, when he he has his own initials all over his. Uh, is, you know, headquarters there in Antarctica or whatever. Maybe you know, this is another uh, indication of how maybe his, like the way Rorschach's will is his superpower, Ozymandias' ego might be his. Yeah, the, 
Definitely, and the other thing you you look at is is with with him. I mean, you know, and this is something that uh, Mord said a while back was that basically he's almost like a Nietzschean character again. That's the whole Superman thing, and it's that that arrogance that he has. He's justified in his mind the large crime, and uh, and to him it's like it's for the greater good, no problem. Smaller crime. This is the first indication we've had of him having any kind of a conscience. Yeah. And, you know, and, and it, it's the first time that, that, that you know, because he's, he's had people killed in, in little things before. And he's been the, the, the direct or indirect cause of their deaths before. But this time, um, is, it's, it's the first time that he seems to be, you know, because let's face it, cards are on the table. You know, it's, it's like, do you really think that that's going to piss them off anymore, that you killed those two guys after you'd already killed half New York? Not really. The... Um, but the the idea is that now he's actually got a little bit of a conscience about it. I, I guess maybe because it seems a little more in cold blood as opposed to being distanced from it. You yeah. Know? So, so, you know, and then the Rorschach on, on the fourth panel on 10, I, I don't know why. I just see this as Rorschach with his mat. You know, the face he's giving is this is this, you know, oh, crap kind of face with his mouth just, you know, in the in the in the perfect circle. Just you know, with his eyes just wide open, just like kind of puckering, you know, like mm-hmm. he can't believe what he's hearing. I don't know if you guys remember the old Saturday Night Live when Eddie Murphy used to do buckwheat, and he would just kind of turn at the camera with the eyes wide open and kind of do the thing with his mouth. Like, oh. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly totally, the expression. I, I totally see that expression <laughs> on his face. What do you make of Bubastis noticing John and Lori? Because. You know, I, I mean, obviously, I, I seem to think that he has kind of like a hyper-intelligent, if not uh, sensitive, psychic, psychically sensitive brain, too, because it's just a TV monitor. And correct me if I'm wrong, but normal cats and dogs probably don't really pay much attention to things that they can't really and truly sense. I seem to think that the genetically engineered Bubastis probably has that kind of strange Squidzilla-like intuition or at least influence to notice or sense these two out so, there. So yeah, he's he not did. he's not looking at the screen. So he's he's I think you're you got it nailed down. He's he's sensing them uh, maybe on a on a physical level in that the energy that Dr. Manhattan will put puts out, he's he's just picking up on that. Just kind of like any animals will seek shelter when a storm's coming before a human will even know there's a storm coming. Same same idea on a much, you know, different scale. And he did the same with Rorschach and Night Owl when they were coming up too. And remember early on they talked about him how you know people's teeth felt they were kind of rattled uh, by by being around him for for too much. Yeah, Just his presence. Right. And of course, yeah. notice the the pose that John and Lori are in. Well, going going back to that that same pose yeah. when they left, there it's like the the uh, Hiroshima shadow is left in their wake when they transferred out of New York. You can see that on page uh, on page eight, and you're right; they're still holding that position when they uh, when they appeared. Yeah, very clever. Then we uh, move on to eleven, and it's interesting that you know he drew or well that Doctor Manhattan this time when they transported to Antarctica, or as opposed to Mars, made sure he put a I'm assuming is a field around Lori to keep her warm so she's not freezing to death. Um, just by the way that's drawn, that little aura kind of thing around her. Right. Whereas before he, even though he's distracted, he he's remembered, um, which I think is kind of interesting. Before he was, you know, not really distracted, but totally forgot the fact that she couldn't, you know, breathe on Mars. Well, one thing that I was curious about, and 
judging by the fact that she's able to survive long enough to get inside, it's probably still there. But once he's gone, it looks like it doesn't. She doesn't appear to be drawn with with the ore in place anymore. But judging by what we saw with the servants, she should be dead almost instantly. So I'm assuming. So it, it just was odd to me to not see the aura once uh, Jonathan left. Well, yeah. maybe maybe um, the video cameras can't pick it up, like because we're not really looking at her. We're looking at her through a TV. You well, know even I mean? the even the next page on twelve, when you see her uh, heading towards the uh, the portal, the entryway, uh, where we're seeing her for for real, quote unquote, we should we, we don't see that. Oh, right on. You got yeah. it. Yeah, twelve and thirteen. Yeah. And then the fact that he just leaves her outside, you know, he just doesn't, again, it's just, you know, detached Dr. Manhattan. He doesn't think about it. He just knows. And we get this, again, we get this, um, the, this, this time displacement thing, you know, where he's, uh, yes, yes, he killed Blake in half New York. Excuse me, Rorschach. I'm informing Lori 90 seconds ago. Yeah, and that and then, that is a great moment. That and the, his next line, the next panel, and how they get repeated. We're seeing both both of those scenes on uh, on page twelve. He yeah. really is confused. I mean, this is this is new. He hasn't been like this in it's been what thirty years since he's been or twenty years since he's been Doctor Manhattan. Yeah, it's really it's really interesting how this has totally got him turned inside out. And and, and even better, the line from the second panel on eleven. Uh, I'm sorry, it's these tachyons. He, it looks like he's actually answering Laurie, and yet the same exact line, the same moment, he's answering Dan with the same line. He, he easily could have been responding to both of them with the same with the same quote, because he actually is yeah. repeating to both of them at the same time. Yeah, and he's actually he is posed exactly the same way. I mean, mm-hmm. if you flip between eleven and twelve, the pose on his, the way he's drawn in profile, the way he's drawn from behind, the, the you know the position of his legs, his arms. It, it's almost like. Literally, the you know the panel was you know pulled you know his, he cloned the drawing you know to copy it so it's it's again it's he's he's you know displaced in time literally I mean he's it's almost like he's existing in both both times at once he is he absolutely is which he is and then you see even even Dan comments on twelve he says are you okay you seem sort of I don't know drugged or something you know even Dan notices right off the bat that, mm-hmm. that he's off you know there's something there's something you know. He's very, you know, he seems, if you didn't know any better, you know, he'd be very confused. And it's interesting that, you know, again, Adrian was able to figure out that that's what it would take to to take him down if he ever came, is this tachyon, mm-hmm. you know, yes, he, he got him to leave Earth, but it's like almost like a fail-safe. It's like i got to generate these tachyon fields, so, you know, if, either if he doesn't leave or he comes back, at least he, this will throw him off to where he can't thwart my plan before it's had time to come to fruition. Actually, I was wondering. I thought maybe the tachyons were actually a side effect of the teleportation device because it wasn't so much that it was there to, that's a failsafe against him. It was more of a, he had to get rid of Manhattan so he wouldn't detect the tachyons and potentially interrupt his plan. Could be, but he also apparently he mentions too that they were generated from satellites and in other places too. So yeah, all, all, to assist, than- all to assist in the transportation of the uh, of the squid. Oh, good point. Yeah, no, good point. That, that's that's how I took it when I read that. No, that, that's a, that's a good. I, yeah, I think you're right. I didn't think about it like that. But yeah, I guess you would need something to carry the signal. You know, like Independence Day taught us, you you have to bounce it off a satellite to to get around. You need a line of sight. <laughs> and and then on I'm, on 13, I love the the Manhattan line. It says, "Be the vite. Even if I can't predict where I'm going to find you, I can turn this place to glass. You can't hide. You're being stupid." Which is a very a it's it's awesome because he knows he knows he's going to find him, 
but yet he's saying, even if even if I don't know even if I don't know where I'm going to find you, I know I'm going to find you. And then and then he says you're being stupid, which I thought was interesting. And he says the the Trekians were clever, but this is stupid. It, it, it's it it almost seems kind of like he's out of character. Even you know this isn't something that I would predict that that Doctor Manhattan would say. I mean, this is something almost like John Osterman would say. Well, and, and that's exactly right. He, he he very much is John Osterman right now because he doesn't know what's happening. He doesn't know what's going to happen next. He hasn't yeah. been in this kind of position, like I said before, in thirty years. Yeah. This is as close to human as he's been in in ages. Yeah, it, but and it's interesting because even though he is that way, he still knows the outcome. You know, even but it's it, it's it, I, instead of being specific, it's vague. It's very vague. Well, I, don't, I don't know that he does. I don't know that he knows what's going to happen when he goes after Bubastis. I don't think he knows what's about to I, happen to him. Yeah, I think he's just saying, "I'll turn the place to glass, and I'll be able to see wherever you're hiding." Then, yeah. You know, because the glass will be transparent. Right, right. It, it It's still very fatalistic, though. As he says, very well, if I must. If I must follow this through to the bitter end. Yeah. You know, he, he knows again, what they, what, what's happening next. Yeah. It, it's, it's almost like a... I almost got like a old, you know, uh, you know, Coyote Roadrunner, you know, old, you know, Warner Brothers cartoon style where it's like, here's Vitey runs away. And then he, what does he do? He, he basically hides around the corner, you know, to operate his machine, thinking you know he's going to be able to get away and uh, and and fool him. Which I mean, ultimately he does. But it, it just it just seemed kind of funny that he's he's basically you know hiding around the corner. Um, I mean, even though there, there's a purpose behind it for him to operate the machine. When he uh, does use the machine on Doctor Manhattan on. Uh... I'm sorry, page 14. It's the only uh, panel that we have in uh, other. Um, in, I'm sorry, uh, that uses uh, that goes vertically like that. All the other panels in this uh, issue, other than the uh, the splash pages, are horizontal. Yeah. You know what I mean? They're either three or they're one horizontal panel. This is the only one in the book that is uh, more square, two by two. Yeah. Kind of thing. And it mirrors and the he- picture that we saw earlier in the series as well. When he first turned into Doctor Manhattan, yeah. Just to back up for a second, just to kind of again to pay attention to that panel layout. If you look, you know, twelve has the three panel, and then one panel, one panel, and then tw- and then thirteen has one panel on the top, three in the middle, and then one at the bottom. So it's almost like the the upper portion of the of the page on each one is is kind of flipped, you know, on itself with the with the static, you know, single panel on the bottom. But yeah, I went back through on you know on fourteen, getting back to what Jim said. I compared, um, you know, the, the the page from when he was turned into you know when he was disintegrated the first time, and it's the same. Po- I mean, the only thing different is Bubastis is added to it. It's the same, same pose, the same. You know, it, it, everything is exactly the same as it was before. He killed his dog, <laughs> or whatever that was. Kentucky Fried Bubastis. It's funny how the only one he asked forgiveness from was Bubastis. Yeah. It's just funny. He's like, hmm, do you know I really wasn't sure that would work? And then again, you know, he talks about the tachyons and how it was impossible. Um, that made it possible to give him something he wasn't expecting. Um, you know, again, to kind of, you know, vocalizing, you know, his perceived intelligence. On the top of page 15, we get my favorite line that Laurie has in the entire <laughs> series. Go ahead. Do we need a 15-second tape delay? <laughs> yeah, you got you to put the bleep in. It's funny how she's kind of her father's daughter, though. She uses the gun. Yeah. Yeah. And 
we'll we'll even see that further on, you know, at the end. We'll, yeah. We'll get that. You could even say that her running uh, makeup there from crying kind of mirrors his scar. Oh my god, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Oh yeah, right across his, his mouth like that. I've never noticed that before. Me either. Good catch. Then we get a you know where he's 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 going hi ya you know kind of that karate chop type deal, and he's attempting to you know catch the bullet. I can all I can very much see this being like a slow mo John Woo style, you know turn around Wachowski brothers you know moment yes. you know where he turns around and and moves to catch the bullet, and of course you see the blood. If they play this scene out in the movie, you know, I, I could see th- this would be the beginning of where the people who have no experience with the book will say, okay, she shot him, it's over now. And, you know, and then he'll turn and open his hand with the bullet inside it. That'll be the beginning of the, you know, feeling of this movie is not ending the way I was expecting. Right. Then, of course, the D- Dan and, and Rorsch uh, Rorschach finally um, show up, and it's funny. He 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 said, you know, Dan starts going going after after Adrian, and and what's Adrian's response? Oh, Daniel, 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 please do grow up. And here he is talking and telling him to grow up, yet he's walking around in a in a in a costume, you know, with a bandana on his head. You know, it's just kind of funny how you know, he's, he's telling him to grow up, but he's you know running around in his wearing the underwear on the outside of his you know, pants. And then one of the, to me, one of the, one of my favorite lines of, of the book to, you know, one of many, but um, when he says, what have they achieved? He goes, he goes, failing to prevent Earth's salvation is your only triumph. And yet failure overshadows every past success. You know, by default, you've ushered in an age of illumination so dazzling that humanity will reject the darkness in, in its heart. I just thought that was just, I had to read that, I don't know how many times, because it's like, you know, by failing, his, the, you know, the, basically what he's saying is your inaction has been your greatest achievement, <laughs> you know, which is, you know, again, you know, Dan's self-esteem isn't the, isn't the greatest in general, and, you know, I can only imagine what kind of blow, you know, something like that would, would come across to him. That's that whole theme of impotence that runs through the series right there, and you look at that, that, panel when he says oh daniel please do grow up and uh, and you've just got uh, dan watching him walk away helpless and he, he's just helpless and can you ever really get tired of a 50 foot tall naked blue man <laughs> i guess we'll find out <laughs> i love him he's just like i'm very disappointed in you Something I, I love with, with, the let, with the lettering here is the way that they've, uh, you know, hey, we've got big Manhattan, let's make the font bigger. And, yeah. uh, and so you just get that full of, yeah. it's a nice touch. I love the way he talks down to, uh, to Adrian, just like, you know, like, you know re- restructure myself as the first trick I learned. You know, I've walked across suns. You're the smartest man in the world. That means no more to me than being the smartest termite. <laughs> It's kind of a play on what the comedian called him, too, the smartest man on the cinder. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have expected him to just step on him at this point. I was like, maybe he'll just step on him as he's reaching for his remote. Then we get the, at the bottom of 18, we get the, another, you know, picture of the giant squid. And you can see the, right there, the, you know, the, the top of it, you know, almost looks like an octopus, you know, big old brain right. sticking out of it. All the dead people. Love you as you go through and you're seeing all the, uh, all the sound bites from all the different stations on, and how how the 
you're basically seeing the, um, the reaction go across the entire planet, you know, starting with shock and, and, and going through all the stages until ultimately it's, you know, at the end, end of the war. And, and leading to my probably my favorite panel on this whole, this whole issue, maybe this whole book, and here you've got Adrian Vibe below his painting of the Gordian Knot, screaming, I did it because he just cut the knot himself. Right. He, he I like the way Bohr writes the different snippets, too. It's really cool. It's kind of uh, that we, we mentioned before how Alan Moore has been um, influenced by the beats, and it's very much that kind of stream of consciousness. A little snippet here, a little snippet there, that whole William Burroughs cut-up idea. But he, by getting all the information in 50 different ways, he realizes he's accomplished it. So you get the little bits up the top here, uh, you know, the scene here. Utterly horrible. Can't describe. Death toll in the millions. People insane. A pregnant woman convinced her unborn child uh, was eating her. Terminated. And and when you go back, there was, when they talked about the, uh, when they were talking to the artists on the island, um, you had the one who said, you know, well, the, illustrating the sequence where the young chew their way out of the mother's womb was quite an experience. And, uh, and we're seeing that come back here. Yeah. And, and then we get the interesting juxtaposition on, on page 19 where on the fourth panel, you know, we have Lori crying because she's so sad and distraught. And then on, on the sixth panel, we get Adrian crying because he's so happy. You know, he, he, he did it in his own mind. He, you know, this was the right thing to do. And, you know, it's going to usher in an age of peace that, you know, is somewhat unprecedented in his mind. Also, the panel where he says, I did, it's very visually suggestive of the clock face again. If you look at the round, the in the background, mm-hmm. there's that arc making yeah. a circle, and his hands outstretched like the hands of the clock uh, toward the Gordian knot. So, I mean, there's like tons of symbolism in that one panel. And then, you know, starting on 20, we get the, you know, he, he's come to the realization that, you know, nothing's going to happen to me. You know, he, he's going to get away with it. Because the the alternative um, is that all you know is, is to pile you know more destruction on top of what are, already has been done. I think this is the first time too that the um, that all the uh, characters other than V realize the situation that they're in. If they try to expose him or try to have him you know take him to authorities or whatever, they're pretty much going to doom the world. So as as he says um, in panel three, you're all in checkmate, just like Blake. All except one. When one guy sees the world in black and white, nothing else. Rorschach's ready to go tell the world. Joking, yep. of course. And then, of course, we get, you know, Dan's not, we're damned if we stay quiet, Earth's damned if we don't. You know, basically, like, we're, you know, what does this say about us as people if we don't, if we don't, you know, bring this to justice? You know, who are we? What are we? But yet, if we, if we speak up about it, then, you know, we're right back to, back on the precipice right where we were. And I love that last you know, Rorschach line as he's off the building, never compromise. That just speaks so much to the core of his character. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, John is looking at it from a logical perspective. He, he says, on Mars, you demonstrated life's value. If we would preserve life here, we must remain silent. And I love uh, on 21 where Adrian says, you know, he's making, you know, quips at Rorschach, obviously. Blotting, you know, now what would, what would you call that, I wonder? Blotting out reality? And even in the next one, where he talks about him being a reliable uh, witness, he's hardly without stain. Right. And obviously, uh, an obvious reference back to when he, you know, had all that, you know, when, when, he, when he turned into Rorschach, basically, with all that, the bloodstained clothes. And then he's just like, I think I shall meditate now on my orrery. 
it's just like none of this phases him. Just like he, you know, he's done what he's done, and now it's time to move on, move to the next phase of the plan. Then we find out the next best use for the snow parker. <laughs> I don't know. From the looks of things, it might be the best use for it. <laughs> and this is a very strange. I mean, if you think about what's just happened, you know, I mean, in, in one one you know one hand it makes sense, and the other hand it's just kind of a little weird. If you think about it too, they're the they're the two most normal characters of you know the main Watchmen characters. And their story arc, I mean, this is a logical end. When people are in tragedies, a lot of times they want to be reminded of, you know, life. Yeah. Plus, you know, traumatic events bring people close together. The podcast is a perfect example. (laughs) (laughs) That's under duress. (laughs) That's a pretty neat... If you look at the bottom of 22 on on the... Almost on the pool, it almost looks like kind of a ink blot kind of thing going on. You know, the, the reflections in the pool. Yeah, you've got two of the common uh, visual motifs between the ink blot and the, uh, and, and again the Hiroshima lovers uh, image again. Right. And the ink blot and Rorschach's face on twenty three mirrors the same symmetry. Yeah, I love that first panel there. I just love the way he's drawn. Mm-hmm. Again, we get the symmetry. If you and if you almost look at it, if you look, it almost looks at the top, you know, where it comes together, it, it almost looks like two heads, you know, two, you know, almost like two people kissing and then their, you know, their, their legs almost, you know, down below, you know, at the, at the bottom part of it, I guess if you cut off the extreme, you know, left and, and right hand, it almost does have that Hiroshima lovers look on his, on his mask. Oh, definitely. It's also reminiscent of the monster that he drew when he was seven years old in his psychiatric file. Yeah. The beast with two heads or two backs. And I love this. You know, he totally knows what's coming. You know, he knows what this is going to, you know, what this is going to mean, but he's not, he's not yielding. You know, he knows what John's going to have to do and he knows what he will do, but he's still going to, you know, get on that, you know, get on his motor scooter and ride. And I guess he figures, I, I guess he figures he couldn't live holding that secret, so he might as well get torched. Interesting yeah. that he took it, took the, the mask off, though. He actually went back to being Kovacs for it. Uh, didn't want to die as a Rorschach, I guess. It's it's symmetry again. You know, he he came into the world as Kovacs, and he goes sure. out as Kovacs. Sure, okay. Oh, that is awesome. Yeah, I struggled with that for a while too. I was just like that. You know what? You know what part of it is? Is that? Is it just that there's you know nothing left? But yeah, no, that's that's an awesome observation. It, it's and, something and to again, the. We, Go ahead, Russ. No, I was gonna say. That third panel on on twenty four there, we get the again more symmetry where you know the the you know the the uh, the tears running down you know his you know both sides of his face like that. I think taking the mask off too kind of mirrors like a lot of old you know heroic like Western John Wayne types you know like you're gonna shoot me you know look me in the eye hmm. yeah you know, don't let don't let him get away with it without looking me in the face you know let him know that he's killing a person. Yeah, but of all people to be doing that too, right? <laughs> right, right. Or maybe the idea that, Rorsch- too, that maybe the, uh, that uh, Rorschach is more of an idea or an ideal than an actual person. Like yeah. you can kill Kovacs, but you can't kill Rorschach. Well, see, now this is interesting. And I'm not going to. I'm not going to try to spring this on you, Jim. But um, on the first um, "Who Reads the Watchmen" episode we did, you had said that Rorschach never compromises his, like, moral center, okay? And 
I, I agree with that to a, an extent because I was kind of thinking about, you know, like Paul, kind of like our, what has been said before. And is this not the same Rorschach that said when humanity looks up and begs for help, I'll tell them no? I mean, I really think that, I mean, Rorschach changes here once he sees the true dire straits that the world is in as a result of Veet's plan. So I would say that, you know, while he is morally, you know, um, black and white, because this is kind of what I was talking about, the uh, more or less, I don't know, what's a good word, hypocrisy of Warshak, that, you know, never compromise, not even the face of Armageddon. Yes, this is true, but what about all of those things that kind of went with Warshak, like being antisocial, uh, and more to that point, ignoring, thinking everyone needs cleansed. I mean, doesn't he say, isn't this more or less the Joker's line from uh, the original Batman, this town needs an enema, when he's walking through the streets? Yeah. But he wants to save them now, and that's contradictory to, well, his his journal that he sent to the New Frontiersmen. See, I don't, I don't think, I don't think he's wanting to save them. I, he's wanting the point, truth to get out. Yeah, at this point, it's done. He's not looking to save anybody. He's saying the guilty must be punished. And and Byte is guilty. So he's going to make sure he's punished. Consequences be damned. You know, he doesn't care that what you basically, by by doing, by, by towing the hard line and doing what's right, he knows what he's going to unleash back upon the world. You know, if the world finds out this was all a hoax, then all of the old problems still exist. He doesn't care about that. All he knows is Byte is guilty and he's going to be punished. I think his polarized morality at one point, as Rorschach is telling him, okay, I must go tell everyone that this happened. But maybe his, you know, what, his better angels or whatever, or his Kovacs, realize that he can't stop himself from doing that. And the only way that he's going to be stopped is if Dr. Manhattan stops him. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, he himself knows what he is capable of and knows that he sees the world in black and white. But then, underneath it all, maybe he also knows that he's saving millions of lives by letting himself... You know what I mean? He won't stop himself, but he'll let himself be stopped. I guess that's the best way I can put it. I'm sorry. And he's more powerful in death, really, when you get right down to it. Yeah. Yeah. Now he's a martyr, really. Yeah. So he's Obi-Wan Kenobi. <laughs> yes. <laughs> more cleanup. Ooh. <laughs> I don't know, old man living in the desert wearing robes for 20-something odd years. <laughs> <laughs> With, without a lot of water? He's probably ripe as well, my friend. <laughs> no one will ever watch Star Wars the same way again. <laughs> Tatooine funk. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so then we get on to 25, and John is coming back through um, the building. It's interesting, he's, you know, just phasing himself through the walls, and he comes upon John and Lori um, as they're Dan. resting. Uh, I'm sorry, Dan and Lori. Um, thank you. And it, I, I love on that on that fifth panel where he, he just kind of has that smile on his face. You know, he knows that, you know, she's happy. You know, I guess he's, you know, by leaving and and, and everything, he's, you know, she's finally happy. You know, she, Happier than she than she was, you know, or than she's been for a long time. The one time we've seen a smile on his face before this was uh, way back in uh, in issue one on issue page twenty three. I was just flipping to that. Yep. 
Yeah, when when she's uh, when uh, Laurie's talking to Dan on the uh, on the phone. Now, there's a different angle on his head, but the expression itself is the same. You know, in this case, he's looking down. Then he was looking up. But you know, as she's talking to Dan on the phone, he's got that same smile with the same sort of figure configuration of his eyebrows. And that, I think back then even we alluded to the fact that, you know, that was partially because he knew, you know, where this whole thing was going. Yeah. What greater visual metaphor of him walking away from his own humanity than walking on water? Oh, seriously? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I thought the walking on water. And then, of course, it, it extends on 26 to him, not, you know, not only walking on water, but walking up the walls and then walking through the ceiling. Again, I think this is all going to be some pretty cool stuff. Um, these are yes. Yeah, these are all like physical constructs, right? I mean, you know, up yeah. and down. It's it's the same as for him. Time to him, time is basically a a man made construct that helps you to separate the different moments. But you know, he's living it all at once. And I get the backtrack just a just a hair. But you know, again, John, when you when you said you know, seeing this on screen when you know Vite catches the bullet and seeing that that develop on screen and people. You know, taking another turn. I think the same thing's going to happen when, it, provided it's still in the movie, which I, w- I would assume it is, when Manhattan blows away Vite or bl- blows away Rorschach. I think there's going to be those people in the audience that are going to be like, oh, he's just going to, you know, he's going to, he's going to let him walk. He's going to let him go away. And then, you know, boom, you know, he's going to just be toast in that instance. And I think people in the theater are just going to be like gasping when that happens because they're just so not going to believe it's going to happen. You know, again, it's like, main character you know one of the most you know one of the you know probably the most focused on character in the book and you know boom you know he's gone then it's interesting when we get up to his orrery which it's funny that we're reading a book about an orrery you know given what's going on with final crisis um but you know again very minimalistic you know we've seen you know everywhere else in 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 Veidt's complex that everything is very ornate and very elegant and very detailed and there's stuff everywhere and then we get to or to the orrery and it's it's very minimalistic i mean yes we've got a um you know a a globe of the of the solar system and um you know it looks like the you know the star charts or you know constellations on the ceiling but you know again very you know very simplistic um you know just simple shapes and you know, and stuff like that. Not a lot of, not a lot of stuff here. Something I wanted to mention when this came out back in uh, in '86. First of all, um, there was a big gap between '11 and '12. I think '12 came out like six or eight months later, if I remember correctly, uh, than '11. So we were waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And then we finally got the last issue, and the panel um, I'm going to refer to here is on panel five on page 27. I remember distinctly after reading this. Um, he says, "In the end." Nothing ends, Adrian. Nothing ever ends. And of course, all of us fanboys immediately were like, sequel, sequel. This is leading for a sequel. You know, this is foreshadowing for a sequel. But, uh, you know, there, it wasn't to be. There's an interesting quote from, uh, from Alan Moore, and this is from the Tomorrow's book, uh, Extraordinary Works of Alan Moore. Uh, they just came out with a second edition recently. And he, he says that basically this is where uh, Veidt realizes that his plans have failed. And he's left with some ambiguity and also with an incredible dark weight of, among, upon his conscience. And there's that ambiguity of Dr. Manhattan's parting line. Nothing ever ends. There's not an outcome. The fat lady hasn't sung yet, and she perhaps never will. In the real world, everything is not parceled into stories. It's a continuum. Yes, you might find out who killed Roger Ackroyd or whoever, but then something happens the day after you found that. 
and the day after that, life goes on. It's all one big process. There aren't any endings except in fiction, which kind of leaves Adrian Veidt with his bad dreams, with the sudden appalling discovery of a conscience. Yes, he has bad dreams. He dreams that he's swimming toward the big black ship, toward the ship from the black freighter. And he's as damned as the narrator who also ends up swimming toward that big black ship to take his place on board his dreadful crew now. And that's where Adrian Veidt ends up. We see that symbolized on the very last panel of 27-2 with the giant shadow looming yeah. over Adrian as he looks over his shoulder. So here I am reading this the first time, a couple of times going through it, and I'm thinking, I can't believe he got away with it. And now, just like that, I realize, no, he didn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, it, and it, it, I mean, that's a great idea that, you know... It, you know the Cold War ended, and hey, you know, uh, um, you know, everyone's getting along fine now. You know, America and Russia are now buddies. The world's a safe place. And uh, and Moore said here that he think this is where he thinks that utopia is a falsehood. And um, you know, everyone thinks that that's great. And there's always something else that's going to come up. And we're you know, it's it's interesting because the last few pages before he's had this conversation with John, he's he's been content with himself. You know, almost happy. You know, he's you know he's shed a tear. And now, you know, again, we get to that last panel on 27, and it's like the, you know, the weight of the, you know, world is on his shoulders. And, you, you know, he's starting to, to, you know, I think he, I think he gets what John was saying. I thought it was cool on the, on panel six, where it, it, it's kind of funny when, when John disappears, he kind of leaves a smoke cloud. And, and obviously this model is a model of the, of the, of the solar system. But if you look at it, it almost looks like a mushroom cloud. You know, basically, you know, appearing where the, you know, throughout the entire solar system. I just thought that was interesting that he he leaves Adrian with this image of our solar system and the, the backdrop of a nuclear explosion on on the solar system. One. I thought that was interesting. One of the things that uh, re- repeated names that we haven't really uh, spoken of throughout the book is one that hasn't really appeared that frequently. Um, what I mean is seeing like uh, circles or depictions of the world, or in this case, the universe, with uh, lines all over the place. Now, this first this image was first seen um, at the crime scene where the Bohemian killed uh, his family and himself. If you looked at one of the lamps, likewise, this was seen, of course, with the nostalgia bottle. And the last kind of big time we saw. Uh, this was when uh, Lori, in Lori's flashback, rather, she was looking into the snow globe, and she kind of like saw herself inside a different world. Not the show that came after the Cosby's show, the different world. But um, <laughs> in this case, I think Adrian. I think this is really Adrian's symbol, but aside from the Egyptian stuff, because this is, uh, you know, his view of the world, or rather, him ascribing himself not only in history books, but ascribing himself onto the world, etching himself in there. Um, and as far as the lines go, of course, this is, you know, uh, navigation, as far as, you know, constellations and all that other stuff. But he has made his mark on the world. And I think it's interesting that you get the entire universe for Adrian, but with Laurie, you got this really small, like, wintry scene in the snow globe. It's very much a, a not street level versus, you know, God view of the world, but pretty close to it. I mean, you could say, you know, Adrian, big picture, Lori, um, you know, her struggle was an inner struggle. Adrian's was against, well, man versus society, really man versus the world uh-huh. in some cases. I mean, and, that, and that's not found out. So we suspect. 
and it and here you know here we are at the end of 27 and this is pretty i mean this really could be considered the end of the book i almost consider I don't know how you guys feel, but but basically twenty eight to thirty two is almost like an epilogue. I mean, it's not it's not explicitly you know called an epilogue, but it definitely has that epilogue feel. It where, absolutely does. Like life know, life goes on, you know, and yeah, you know, here we are, you know, starting twenty eight. It's it's Christmas or thereabouts, you know, within you know little little before, a little after. Yeah, two and, months, uh, right? No, November the second to Christmas, right? So here we are, two months two months later, you know, we we cut back to to Sally Jupiter and then these these two blonde folks show up uh, which obviously right off the bat it's it's Lori and and Dan because uh, we you know as, as was mentioned earlier Dan has some secret identities or some some extra, some basically he's made a contingency for if this ever happened and he needed to pick up assume another identity and kind of you know carry on another life I'm assuming that was done and you know if anybody ever found out you know back in the crime fighting days as to you know what his real identity was and was going to be you know any kind of um, danger to his you know friends or family so he would just you know assume this other identity but of course he would honor his friend and mentor by taking his name as his last name uh-huh. yeah it's yeah. nice it's a nice touch also wanted to mention the Architects of Fear uh, is an episode of the uh, Outer Limits in which uh, scientists create an alien in order to unite uh, the world's countries against a common threat rather than one another. Uh, I'm reading from the wiki right now. This episode is similar to the ending of Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons' Watchmen. According to Moore, when he was writing uh, issue 10, he came across a, a guide to cult television that featured this episode and was surprised by its similarity to the ending he already planned for Watchmen, so he put a belated nod in in issue 12. It's a nice touch, too, yeah. Then we get you know, obviously, they show up and Sally. You know, her first her first thing is so who's the stud? You know, you know, Sally's always being Sally. And then, did you, did you guys get the impression that you know when Lori says he was Dan Dryberg, we're Sam and Sandra Hollis now? Do you get the and then based on how she reacts to things, she doesn't she doesn't know that he that Dan was obviously she didn't know Dan's identity. No, she she doesn't realize who he was. Yeah, and then moving on to to twenty nine, it's interesting that Sally, um, you know, feels like she has to have some gifts for 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 the two of them. So she she finds the bottle of Millennium to give to Lori, you know, whereas she's still you know stuck with nostalgia, which is the, you know kind of the, as we see um, on thirty, but is the epitome of Sally's character. Is she's she's entrenched in the past and, you know, that lifestyle and, and her looks and aesthetics and, you know, lives where the sun shines every day and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, whereas, you know, she, you know, hopefully Lori is moving forward and looking forward. So obviously she gives, she gives uh, Lori the millennium perfume, which is kind of looking forward and she keeps her, her nostalgia. And Dan gets the porn. The important part, I mean, the important part is that she told her that, she found out that the comedian was a real father. They don't even use his name. She just says, I know who my real dad is. Then yep. it was just an afternoon. He stopped by. I don't know why I ever told you. They don't even mention his, mention him by name. Yeah. And just that look on her face, you know, when she, when she says it. And, and this is so anti, you know, again, it shows how much, how far Lori has come because 
this is something if she would if if this was sprung on her at the beginning of the book, she'd be totally freaked out, screaming, you know, yelling, storming out the door, and and she's come to grips with it. You know, the you know what she's been through recently has changed her. She's she gets it now. You well, know, it's almost like she. As I say, it certainly she certainly has changed, but actually, is almost I'm almost sad for Lori because. I still don't think she is her own woman yet. I mean, she spent her entire life at this point basically living her mom's life, and now we see in, in, in on page 30, she wants to go and live her dad's life now. She's just met him, so now she wants to le- learn about him by basically being him. She wants to basically wear a costume like his and emulate him. She still hasn't found her own identity, her own path in, in, in being a hero or doing whatever she wants to do. So why her attitude and her, and her posture and her, has changed, she, she's still... It's, she still didn't found herself, I don't think. Which yeah. mirrors John's statement that nothing ever ends. Hey, Paul, did you get a whatever happened to the man of tomorrow feel from this from these couple of pages with Lewis yeah, and Clark at the end? Yeah, there's there's a there's a similar vibe to that for sure. Um, you know, it, it is that <clears throat> um, it, it's like he's taking a thematic "we've become new people" and just making it real. You know, it's it's you know he's taking that theme and, and reflecting it in, in reality for it, and um, and, it, and it was the same kind of thing. You know, at the end of that, where it was you know that it was they were you know he had moved on from that life, and it was all about uh, about the family, and uh, and you see uh, you see Dan saying you know maybe that's not such a bad idea for us, and um, you know I, yeah there's a definite uh, feeling of that, and I can't remember how many, I guess we were looking at uh, actually not too far off really. Because that was that was around eighty six as well, wasn't was it not? Yeah, yeah it's right around then. Yeah, yeah, yeah these would have come out at almost the same time. Yeah, I really, really like how um, on page thirty one we see this familiar street corner that we've seen through the whole issue, but yet the only thing that uh, remains the same is the uh, the Promethean Cab Company. I mean, everything else is gone. Mm-hmm. The um, I mean, that it's now um, where Gunga Diner was is now borscht and or beef and borscht. Or burgers and borscht. I'm sorry. Yes. And the the new utopia across the street has is that say improv? I can't. I'm sorry. I don't have the uh, absolute edition. Tarkovsky. Um, oh, okay. Thank you. Yeah. See, our, our, our graffiti is changing now. Now it's saying uh, "Watch the skies," "New Deal," "Quantum Jump." Pyramid construction is rebuilding the city. Pyramid is still around, though. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, so this is the looking forward. We, you know, and as you mentioned about the whole. Sally looking back kind of thing, and we see her amongst all the pinups of hers as as a youth, and uh, and still hung up on the on on the on this guy from forty years before, you know. And then on the next page, we see this looking to the future. And it's interesting the the Gunga Diner was there before, and that of course re- reflected the whole uh, you know we've we've come to peace with Vietnam, and now we're going to bring their stuff over here so you can get it to eat really fast. Yeah. Um, and now, now we've made friends with the Russians. So now you can get some borscht. Yeah, I don't know what we were doing through all the changes there. I don't know if we mentioned the newsstand being gone, and now it's just a paper vending machine. Yeah, it's the idea but, of the, uh, the progress not necessarily better. Right. Yeah. Just to back up a, a, a little bit on on thirty, when when Sally goes over to the picture of of the of uh, of the Minutemen and and you know and kisses the the comedian's picture there. Uh, to me, that was the, I don't know what you guys thought, but for me, it was, this is the, the clue back to the reader that she, she really loved him. 
you know, in the end, you know, how, you uh-huh. know, as strange and as crazy as, as it was, she, she loved him. Yeah, she did. Definitely. And that, and that was, that was definitely Moore's intent was that, you know, uh, he came back to her late later and that's when they had been, when they had sex consensually. And, um, and it was something that he wrestled with, but he really wanted to put that on there so that you understood that, you know, this time it meant something to her. And then of course, moving on to 31, I see that, or you see that the, uh, the the electric hydrants have kind of like a, even a more modern look to it, you know everything. The city looks cleaner, you know. Even the graffiti. I mean, the graffiti on the wall, you know, it, it, instead of it, you know, being all kinds of random stuff, you know, it says New Deal and Quantum Jump, which whatever that is, and then almost like the ribbon, you know, like almost like a, you know, you see those ribbons all the time nowadays, either for, you know, breast cancer or you know. You know, you know, support the troops or, you know, whatever it is, almost, you know, kind of like one of those there. You know, so everything just kind of has this, you know, it, again, it's like tragedy brings people together, you know, so, you know, there's been this great, you know, this, this horrible thing that's taken place and now, you know, people are working together and you don't see the knot tops running around, you know, I mean, it's just, you know, everything, you know, has this clean look to it. Okay, did we say that at the top of 31 that was Tchaikovsky? Tarkovsky. Tarkovsky, the director. Yes, um, and uh, the the movie that they reference is The Sacrifice, which had a character is, called Little Man. Yeah, and and like, it's, it's like Fat Man and Little Boy, the bombs. Yeah, it it was about the Holocaust, uh, an up, sort of uh, an impending Holocaust, and people's reactions to it. So that was uh, yeah, that one was. Uh, can't remember what year that came out, but but at any rate, that's what that one was about. And 84. Tarkovsky, for those who who aren't familiar, um, the movie Solaris that came out a few years ago, he he directed the original version of that. Uh, so you know, very he, he deals a lot with these sort of you know huge events that that are going to affect people, but it's all about the their reactions to it. Then of course we see on panel two on thirty one it says RR to run in eighty eight and. I mean, obviously, I think everybody's first reaction is Ronald Reagan, and then, and then, of course, I love the you know the bit on the last page where they uh, they talk about it being not Ronald Reagan but Robert Redford and the great mislead. Yeah, it's it's awesome. And then, you know, who wants a cowboy actor in the White House? You know, that's what the the (laughs) editor says. And it's so funny. You know, this is the conservative, you know, type newspaper talking about Robert Redford running for you know president in 1988. And the conservative is railing about a cowboy in the White House. Yet in the real world, we have a cowboy actor, you know, conservative, you know, big, you know, Ronald Reagan, the great conservative himself, you know, as president of the United States. I thought, it, I thought it was just an awesome uh, juxtaposition, you know, to, yeah. to again to leap you from 31 to 32 there. And then, you know, kind of going back to 31. Obviously, we see Seymour, who we've seen earlier working at the New Frontiersmen, and we, you know, again where we've seen. Um, you know, from 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 the panel layouts where we kind of track his um, his journey. You know, we we track his movements through the city. You know, kind of like we tracked um, on, on a smaller scale. Kind of like when we tracked the you know when when Rorschach delivered the package, um, his his journal. You know, and dropped it in the post office. We kind of tracked through the city. You know, the postman delivering that package from you know where Rorschach dropped it to the to the offices. So again, we tracked Seymour on his journey through the city with his beat shoes on. I was just going to say that, yeah. And, and, 
Notice that uh, that uh, he he walks over the newspaper there that talks about the survivors revealing you know how they got through uh, the disaster, uh, and the comic book that's sitting there, Tales from the Morgue. It seems that pirate comics have been replaced with horror. Oh, good. Makes yeah. sense. It's kind of like Tales from the Crypt, almost. Yeah. I mean, I know much, that's yeah. a little more you know modern than than otherwise, but it's they you know recount their experiences, the survivors under hypnosis too. You know, when I read that, I was thinking not they weren't so talk, so much talking about the reactions of the day. They were talking about the those subliminal messages that mm. uh, implanted in people, like they put through through the through the squid beast. You know, talking about the um, you know the, the the babies chewing their way out, things like that. So revealing those subconscious things that they had been experiencing, but they couldn't quite put their finger on. If you look at the guy on panel uh, one, two, three, four, uh, he's smoking a pipe which is a little different than, like, the cigarette stuff. So, like, that aspect of culture uh, changed. But uh, it looks like Adrian's still leading the way with the Millennium ad that we read about uh, a couple issues back in the prose piece. And that was just about ready to launch right right when they read that. It was supposed to go out, you know, right at the beginning yeah. of November or, or very yeah. soon. And the car, that car there even looks sportier than what we've seen. You know, it's almost like a sportier you know, version of what we've seen in this city up to this point. But, it, you know, here, here here's where I started to kind of look at this panel specifically, um, started to kind of question, you know, Vites, either maybe his motive a little bit or the end result. Here you got a guy that brings about the death of millions in order to save the world from, you know, annihilation, you know, impending war, nuclear annihilation, and tries to be altruistic about it. Yet what do we see on, you know, page 31 splattered everywhere is, is Adrian Vite the capitalist, you know, here he is taking it, totally taking advantage of all this, of, of what's happened with a construction company, a tennis shoe company, his new perfume ad, you know, all this stuff that he's, you know, you know, he made his fortune once before, you know, doing all this, and now he sees an opportunity to reinvent himself, um, you know, by, by creating a crisis to, to create optimism, which allows him to kind of reinvent his whole line of, of products. Another thing that just never ends. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, again, again, you know, you think, you know, at, at his core he's trying to be altruistic, and then you see all this, you know, again, you know, bite the capitalist. I'm trying to find the, um, Adam will probably know where it is. I'm trying to find the page where Rorschach is walking through the city, and there's, like, hookers fighting everywhere, and, like, oh, uh, no. I would like to put that against the top of 31, you know, to to get a look at at the differences and you know i think they're trying to make you question whether v did do the right thing or not you know they're they're showing all his capitalism and everything that russ just said but they're also showing a very clean and tidy new york city whereas earlier on they just showed that disaster yeah it looks like uh, the one you might be talking about john is in in issue two page 25 let's see if i can get there I think that's, that's what you're referring to. Yeah, where he's walking by and it's the burlesque show. And, right. you know, it's like the peep shows, you know, and then the, you know, yeah, and it's just, you know, the filth and the trash. And even the, you know, again, you know, we get into coloring, you know, sets the mood. Just another thing, again, looking at uh, sort of repeated visual motifs, you see the uh, Pioneer Publishing logo is very much like the Rum Runners, lo- Rum Runners logo that we saw a, a few issues back. With these sort of the, again the, the symmetrical uh, reflected uh, letters, and and 
meltdown the meltdown sign across the street from the publisher has been replaced with sunbursts. Right. I guess that's just sort of you know looking at a, at a brighter side of things. And then you know we the uh, you know Pioneer Publishing you know they've tried to cover over the graffiti and stuff even you know that that people had written. Oh. Um, and then one of the things it, on on thirty one on the on the fifth panel. It it says watch skies where before or it looks like watch watch the skies or watching the skies or I'm, I'm sure it's something like that. Whereas in the past it's always been you know you know we never see the full thing but it's always been and again we don't see the full thing here but you know who watches the watchmen well uh-huh. here we it's translated to watch the skies you know again it's trans it's that transition from we don't need to be concerned about you know, what's going on here, we need to be more concerned with bigger things. We need to be looking at the skies. We need to be looking at the threats from, you know, outside our, you know, planet, solar system, galaxy, you know, whatever you want to call it, you know. And it's, it's again, this change in, in philosophy for everyone that, you know, the, the threats aren't from within anymore. The threats are from without. Don't you think that that kind of changed, like, didn't Adrian at the same time while saving the world, didn't he just change everyone into, well, what would go into the crank file from the New Frontier? Didn't he just, I mean, I'm not talking about just paranoia, but, like, these are the guys that listen to Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell or George Norrie that, like, oh, I saw a UFO over Phoenix, or, you know what I mean? Like, didn't he just turn everyone into a bunch of um, uh, anxiety-ridden conspiracy theorists? Or, or like, um, not, con- not not so much conspiracy, but like with a bunch of you know UFO watchers or and and whatnot. I mean, that's pretty disingenuous, actually. And it's it's funny that when we get to the last page, because of what Adrian did with like the alien stuff and the idea of like crazy, ridiculous theories going on, would people be more likely to read Rorschach's journal? Well, or, you know, or, it's, or believe or believe. Go ahead, Paul. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, it, it's basically you know the idea of it before is that anyone who read that would think it was the rantings of a crazy man. Now they're not so sure. You know, you looked at the at the graffiti before, where it would always you know they, it would uh, just like Russ was saying, where it would it would always be sort of half written and uh, and it wouldn't get finished and uh, and it's almost as though you know they were being run off while they were trying to finish it. Well, now watch the skies. It's it's there in full. You know, we can assume it's there in full because we don't see the, the sort of break. And, and, it, and it reflects right back to panel three, one world, one accord. Hey, we're all with you, man. I agree with you. You go ahead and write that on that wall. And, uh, and I think that, 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 um, that, again, it was the allying, allying everyone against a common en- enemy. But, uh, you know, that, that at the very least, at least everyone's all together on it. And, again, I think with, with Rorschach, Rorschach's journal, perhaps... Uh, Perhaps Adrian's turn, and I never thought of it this way. But perhaps is turning them into the people who would be, who would buy into the you know who would be the cranks or what or whatnot. Um, now maybe they're ready to uh, to read that stuff and believe it. Yeah. What's uh, what's preferable, paranoia or radiation sickness? You know. <laughs> so of course, poor Seymour just takes nothing but abuse, abuse from the beginning and abuse in the end, and. The last panel, we pretty much takes you know it pretty much takes us right where we began, you know where instead of zooming out on you know that we saw on page one, this is zooming in. You know we get closer and closer to Seymour, and then of course the last one is the ketchup stain on his smiley shirt that that is matches the button that we saw at the very beginning. 
So here's here's the question. You know, the whole big thing was with the journal, right? I mean, that was one of the you know, if if Rorschach came back and you know was you know his you know did something about you know making sure his journal got read, and here you know we're left with the well, does Seymour pick the journal or does he you know toss the journal and pick something else from the crank file? I mean, it's you know. You know, it, the the fate of what happens in this universe is left in this poor slob's hands. Yeah. But I recall some, and I'm try, I was trying to look back through it, and I can't remember exactly where it was, but and we commented about it at the time even. Um, I think it was issue five or six, maybe. I thought it was determined that Rorschach's handwriting was so bad that it was completely illegible, and that somebody looked through the flip through the journal, and they couldn't even make any sense out of it. I think it was one of the cops. Well, Actually, it was, it was I think, Seymour, when he, he was trying to read, he couldn't really, really understand it, I think. Oh, you're right, the yeah. cops as well, though, they were talking about that. But he also, Rorschach mentioned that what the cops found were scraps, his notes. This journal was his finished product. Yeah, right. he even mentions, I think, that he's going to write this as legible as possible right, right before he drops it off. But my, my, with the journal now, you, know, you say, like, basically it's all here. He can reveal a plan if he chooses to run it. Is, is it, though? Because that only goes up to the part where... They're leaving for Antarctica. That's when he dropped it off. It ends off with him saying that they believe that Veed is up to something. But not what? I mean, I don't think there's, there's going to be anything in there that's going to connect him to to the squid or anything else and to ruin you know, Utopia, if you will. Maybe it might put together that he's he killed Blake, but beyond that... Well, it might lead what? some people to Veed's way. And that's possible, too. Yeah, they, they start putting the pieces together, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit there, and then boom, you know, all of a sudden somebody's able to figure out, you know, really what's going on. And then the fact and that, you know, who who profited most from all of it? It was yeah. Adrian Adrian Vice. <laughs> like they said, follow the money. You know, and you, and you exactly. made the point earlier is is Vite has not does not seem to have changed what he's doing. You know, he's he's, you know, barreling right on two months later with the doing the same old uh you know, the same old product launch that he'd always planned to do, that we're still going with it. And, uh, you know, he's not changing what he's doing. So, you know, at some point, uh, you know, again, it never ends. And, it's you know, there's the idea that he's left to, to stew in what he's done and its own sort of uh, lack of effectiveness, you know, or, or its own temporary effectiveness. But there's also the, ch- the very real chance that, you know, it, it doesn't always end up uh, sun and roses for him. Absolutely. And that brings us to the end. Yeehaw. Yeah. It's been a long journey. I feel like I, I either need a drink or a cigarette or both right now, and, and, and I, don't, I don't even smoke. Um, I don't need either of those after last night. Thank you. <laughs> I, I bet not. So I guess this is where we end for now. It's definitely not the end of this, you know. What, kind of like the Watchmen itself being a mirror. Mirror. Um, we're going to end and the Who Reads the Watchmen series at least the discussion piece at the end. Whereas in the first issue, we started with the discussion piece. So, and following with Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons' vision for the book, we will we will do the same. And that'll be next week rather than in two weeks. Right. Yeah, we're gonna we're breaking the mold. And as this airs, I'll be, uh, be doing that live Monday night. Um, I don't think we mentioned we're going to try to do that on live on Stick'em as well, so you can listen to it as we're recording it, as well as call in and participate yourself. So wait a minute. If I were a really big Watchmen fan, I wanted to hear that exclusive Dave Gibbons interview that we have. I could hear it on Stick'em before yeah. we even put it on the podcast? You, you could. 
you wow. could. Wow. Check the that's uh, awesome. Check the message boards at the the Californs.com and uh, we'll put up the uh, the link to the uh, to the Stickum channel we're going to be on. And what is that number to call in live 9 p.m. Eastern uh, next Monday night, the 10th? The 9th. The 9th. Yes, John, I absolutely do have that number. <laughs> and that number is 516-468-7912. Again, that's 516-468-7912. So give us a buzz between, I'd say, what, 9 and 11 Eastern? On the ninth, and we'll uh, you know if you get the voicemail, try again. Maybe we're on the line with somebody else, and uh, we'll get you on to talk Watchmen. There you go. And you guys will definitely be in for a treat with the Dave Gibbons interview and you know, all of it. As we said, it was we we unfortunately we didn't you know weren't able to kind of talk to him live, but he did you know he did answer our questions, um, and all of us have gotten you know have listened to it, and it 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 I think you everyone will enjoy it, and I think it's a real treat. It's it's pretty phenomenal. I mean, I, I think I think that he appreciated that we went beyond the pale of what was it like working on a movie. Yeah, <laughs> and that we, you yeah. know what I mean. Like you could kind of tell that I think he was more forthcoming because not that like hey we knew the book backwards and forwards, but like that we were that we came at, from the interview from a good place. So very cool. And thanks again to Jim for getting that set up. Well, yeah. he answered questions that everybody put in, so it's definitely a team effort. I'm, I'm just glad that we got it. I was, it was really cool. To, now we're one. It's like the whole Kevin Bacon thing. We're one, you know, step away from Dave Gibbons now. So, and what, uh, what an amazing uh, end cap to the last, you know, more or less 24, 25 weeks of the Legion of Dudes history here. You know, we're working on, you know, 25 plus episodes at this point. Once uh, next week comes around, so. I, that's that's pretty amazing to me that in, in six months' time we've been able to, well, <laughs> not screw it up. Get get the grail, you know, more, more or less for for this. Aside from you know Alan Moore, so that's that's pretty wild to me. And definitely, this may be the end of the Watchmen, but this is definitely not the end of the Legion. Um, as you guys have heard, hopefully from our other shows, um, we plan on continuing this this uh, this journey with with. Another book, and I think um, I think the next half hour wasted uh, show, you'll be able to hear a little bit more about our plans for the future. So please tune into Brad and Frank if you're not already. And thanks again to Paul for uh, coming and joining us tonight. Great job! Yeah, guys, pleasure, it's, a, it's it's a real pleasure. I, I've been uh, I've been loving the show since you started it. And I've been a huge fan of, of all the stuff that you're doing, you know, all the Watchmen stuff and all the other books that you've covered as well. And uh, so it's it's a real gas to get to uh, to actually join in, especially on the, on the final chapter. So thank you so much. Oh, it's been our pleasure. Well, I'm, I'm hoping eventually if we do something like Great Darkness Saga or some other you know classic Legion run, we could definitely team up again. Absolutely. Awesome. And hopefully, uh, hopefully, if I can make it up to Super Show again this year, we can we can continue our our drink filled discussion of '80s comics and our love thereof. Oh, absolutely! <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. So I guess that wraps it up for tonight, and we will absolutely see you next week for uh, issue twelve, part two. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.